Grace and peace. Uh, it's so good to be with you. So, so good. And um, I want to welcome all of you, but that, of course, includes uh, those joining us online. We love you lots. And uh, as well as anyone uh, who's new. I think I don't see any new faces here, but perhaps online. So, welcome. Yeah, so glad that you're a part uh, of us here at the table. Um, so, the title of my message tonight uh, is How Not to Take Communion. How Not to Take Communion. It's a strange title, um, but I think our text will make it kind of clear what's going on as we, as we get into this. So, uh, our text is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there or follow along on the screen. Um, as you'll pretty quickly be able to tell, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was the, really one of the first great missionaries, church planters, theologians, um, if you've ever read his letters in the New Testament, you know, from time to time, he gets real riled up, um, downright angry. And um, it's, I would say this is definitely one of the moments where it's um, well, well warranted. So uh, again, we'll kind of get into it. So, all right, we'll start in verse uh, 17 of chapter 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. <laughs> you can tell he's, he's, he's a real charmer. <laughs> for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Uh, keep in mind, you know, Paul's kind of traveling around, so he's not like a local pastor who's there week in, week out. He's a church planner, so he kind of plants a church, and he like moves on. Um, so he's all over the place. So he's, you know, he's getting wind. He's hearing of what's going on at this church, and of course, he has to take everything with a grain of salt, but that's why he says, to some extent, I totally believe it. Um, now, speaking of these divisions, just to give you a little bit of, of, of background, this will be a quick footnote. Um, so in chapter 1 of this same book, 1 Corinthians, uh, he starts off by talking about how there were, um, basically people kind of had their, like, favorite preachers slash kind of celebrity Christians. Um, so they were saying things like, uh, well, I'm really a follower of Paul, and another was like, well, I'm really just a huge fan of Peter. And still another was like, well, I, I just love Apollos' preaching. Um, and so they had these, they were latching onto these kind of leaders. And what was happening was, of course, Christ was kind of getting pushed to the margins of their gatherings as they all probably kind of bickered about who's their favorite celebrity preacher. We actually know, um, for example, somewhere, I think it's in the book of Acts, it talks about how Apollos really was like a great speaker, like, he was really good at presenting. Paul, on the other hand, was a better letter writer. He wasn't, some people said he wasn't so good in, like, the pulpit. So you can kind of see where probably all the, like, theologian people who want to read that, they're like, I'm a follower of Paul, you know? And then someone who just likes a good message, they're like, I'm a follower. So you can see where this, these divisions started kind of finding their way into the church. And so Paul, he, he just, I mean, he's had none, or He's had enough of this. So it's actually a really clever way he um, kind of starts shutting this down in his letter. Because again, he has to write to try to shut it down. He can't be there. So in chapter 1, he says, um, did, uh, did Paul die on the cross for you? <laughs> and that's so good. It, he said, did, uh, were you baptized in the name of Peter? He says, no. No, no, no. This, it was the Lord Jesus who died on the cross of your sins, it was Lord Jesus whose name you were baptized into. Like, this is who this is about. Like, let's not get sidetracked. So there's, these are kind of the echoes of the divisions that he's referring to. As you'll see, though, as we get into this, it gets 
The divisions actually went even deeper than that, though, everyone having their um, favorite, you know, celebrity preachers. Also, you know, thankfully, we've totally outgrown this in the modern church, you know, no more celebrity preachers <laughs> for us. Uh, okay, I'm not going to get into that. I won't. All right. Uh, verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. <laughs> Again, a sort of, I don't see passive aggressive. I'm not sure what he's getting at here. Um, verse 20. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? This will be a key line um, for our interpretation later. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Can you, can you feel the, <laughs> some of the tension? Um, all right, so what's, what's going on in this background? Like, what's the background here in this text? So um, the early church had a practice of combining what they called uh, the, a love feast and the taking of the Lord's Supper. So the, the love feast was basically like, we would probably call it like a church potluck or meal. Um, and their idea was, you know, we often think of communion as a very kind of somewhat gloomy, serious, you know, thing. And that was true. Like you'll see later, he talks about examining yourself and, and things like that. Um, so that kind of has its place, but it wasn't quite the feel of the early church when they do communion. It was really kind of this celebration. So they would like have church, have a big meal, and then they would segue into, um, you know, into communion. Um, however, the, the, the little kind of trick was, so keep in mind, this was, you know, like a real church at a particular time in a particular place in the world. So 2,000 years ago, they're in the province of Corinth, and that city had a certain culture. And as was true in a lot of the ancient world, um, there was a certain protocol for how you ate food. Um, things like uh, who you ate the food with, um, where you sat at the meal spoke volumes. We kind of even have some of that today. You know, like you go to uh, the birthday party of the friend, and whoever's sitting like right next to the friend, you know, they're like really good friends, you know. And someone who's like way down the end, especially if it's like arranged seating, you know, and you're kind of way down there, you, you kind of, it speaks to the relationship, right? So imagine, though, if every meal was kind of like that, like very um, thought through about who you sat with, where you sat, who ate first, who ate last, um, even down to what type of food got served to who. So you had, you know, the fancy food, the, the high-quality stuff, the, even um, you'll, you saw the reference about getting drunk, so they would, like, have wine um, at these love feasts. Um, and, I mean, it's possible even that the wine, like, there was, like, the good stuff and then, like, the Trader Joe's $1 bottle, which I'm not, I'm not too good for that. I like that cheap one. All right, so, so you've got these, right, this is kind of the, the thing going on. Um, so... So also keep in mind as a little background, we know he's, um, there's reference here to those who have nothing. So, you know, in the ancient world, like, to be poor, there really was no welfare system or state or anything. So, you know, to be poor was, I mean, it meant skipping meals. I just, over the summer, I read Nelson Mandela's um, amazing, uh, uh, his autobiography. I mean, it's incredible. I don't know if you've read that's like... Man, it's incredible. But um, it was interesting to hear him talk about being poor growing up in South Africa and how for him, 
just like, honestly, in Corinth, um, that meant skipping meals. Like, and he had some education. This was when he was just trying to start his law practice there in South Africa. And he did not have enough food to eat three meals a day. Sometimes he couldn't even eat certain days. So he would, like, choose, like, Monday, skip Tuesday, skip Wednesday, Thursday, skip Friday. And, like, he just couldn't afford it. He didn't have the money. Um, now, I mean, now just, we actually did a message a few years ago on, on hunger, and that's still, there's still kind of an issue with this in the United States, um, though with food banks and things like that, boy, hopefully that's really been lessened, you know? Um, but, that, but just keep in mind, that's not the case in, like, Corinth. This was a very stratified society. You had the upper class, you had the lower classes, and to be on that low rung of the society, it, it was rough. I mean, it's rough today. Terrible to live in poverty. But in Corinth 2,000 years ago, like, you, hunger was a real thing. So, okay, so, so what's going on? Well, you've probably already started connecting the dots, right? So basically what you had were these wealthy, kind of upper class, um, I haven't missed a meal in a year, Corinthian Christians who were prioritizing themselves at the, at the feast whose name was love, can you see the irony, like, in this? It's the love. Here we go. Um, they, they, were, um, they were prioritizing themselves, again, think of it, at the very meal that was the build-up to communion. Like, that was the whole point, was to kind of segue from the meal into communion, this moment where we were going to, they were going to worship the Jesus who gave of himself, uh, the very one who served, the Jesus who didn't look to his own interests, but to the interests of others, at that meal where they remembered the Jesus who said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Like, at that meal, the rich, the, the upper class folks were elbowing their way to the front of the line. So, in effect, what you had were the, the people who hadn't skipped meals that week were now getting the best seat, the best food, first place in everything, and those who, and actually he mentions, even to the point of getting completely wasted, like they're having a party. They're just living it up. While meanwhile, you had those who went hungry all week coming to this feast whose name is love and leaving, like basically picking through the crumbs, the leftovers. And so, this is why Paul is so hacked off. I mean, he's, he's livid about this. Um, so, this gets me to thinking, like, what does, what does this mean for us? What, what can we learn? I want to give you um, a few lessons tonight. Few, I'm gonna, I'll call it just three lessons from this, this passage that I think apply uh, to us in our own day. So, here's the first one. The church must take its cues from Christ, not the surrounding culture. Like, I know this is basic, like, oh, of course, Christians should follow Christ. Um, you'd think it would be obvious, you know? But here's the thing. Um, culture, it just, it saturates us. It just sucks us right in. It's sort of like culture is to us as water is to a fish. I mean, you're just immersed in it. This is why you have a cross-cultural experience, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I've been in a culture this whole time. Oh, my gosh, didn't even think about that. Didn't think I had a culture until I went to someone else's culture, and then I realized, oh, I have a culture, and it's different than their culture, right? Like, this, it's just invisible. To, it's so, and so what happens? It just, it just eats us up. 
I mean, we just, or proverbially, we just, to switch the metaphor, we eat it up. If we just take it in, it just becomes a part of us. It seeps into every cell of our body. It's just how we are. And this is my, what's, what's interesting is I'm imagining, well, keep in mind how these letters came to churches. So basically, right, it's not like everyone had a Bible. Um, they had the Old Testament, not anything in the New so these letters, when you would write a letter to the, the churches in this area of Corinth, they would then be read publicly in church. Like, hey, everyone, take your seats, take your seats. We've got a new letter from Paul. All right, well, let's see what he has to say. And the following directives, I have no praise for you. Right? Like, you can imagine, and everyone's sitting there. Right? So I'm just, imagine you're kind of the upper-class Corinthian Christians in this. Like, is it hot in here? I feel like it's getting hot. Um, and I'm just... I mean, one thing, it's, now it's possible they were very aware of what they were doing. It's also possible that they really weren't. Uh, in fact, I'm imagining them hearing this. It's kind of hitting them, and it's sort of like their eyes are opening. But then as human beings are prone to do, at least if they're anything like me, I would probably be really prone to get defensive. So I have this, uh, this is my imaginary kind of um, reaction from upper-class Corinthian Christians. This is how I'm imagining um, their, their kind of unchristian response. Uh, so here it is. Well, Paul, that's just not the way we do things around here. I've been a Corinthian my whole life. My dad was a Corinthian, my grandpappy, even my great-grandpappy, all Corinthians. And for as long as I can remember, this is just how our world works. Yes, of course, everyone's equal, but some are more equal than others. Animal farm? Anyone catch their eyes? Yeah. I've worked hard for my position. I've earned my spot in society. And Paul, if you think for one minute that I'm going to come to this church and lay down my dignity and my God-given rights so that some person with half my education level and intelligence can turn their nose up at me and saunter their way to the front of the line? That's just not how we do things around these parts, Paul. Can you kind of hear? I mean, it's, it's eerie how, like, we can see it for them, right? Like, oh, my gosh, that's so classist and, like, ugh. And yet, um, I mean, how much did this seep? I mean, just imagine, uh, it's not even that long ago. I mean, I, I can think of, there was a, a couple. Um, you all know, actually, they're a part of our church now. But the, when I first met them, it was Roy and Nikki Parker, an interracial couple. And they told me stories of going to the church I grew up at. And folks told them many years later that when they walked through the doors, they had the thought of, like, well, that's just not right. Like, I'm going to be, I'll try to be nice to them, but that's just not that's just not how we, you know, do things. Um, which we'll actually get to in a little while around racism. And, like, and that was, I mean, I started going to that church in, like, 1993. So, I mean, isn't it remarkable how these things, the culture, it just seeps in. It just seeps in through podcasts and music and art and uh, well, back in the day, radio and television, and of course now the internet, it just, it just seeps. And, and before you know it, like in that little rant I gave from that um, stuck-up, terrible Corinthian Christian, like in their mind, they're just, you know, speaking the truth. Sometimes you have to say the hard thing, you know, and they don't realize 
how in conflict it is with their Christian identity. Um, this is a huge problem. It, it, I think we can see now why in verse 11, Paul says uh, that your meetings do more harm than good. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Like, I mean, we think, well, it's church. You know, so churches get together. Well, that's a good, that's good. And yet Paul is saying sometimes churches can get together and it's a net loss. You can come and sing the songs, and the preacher can preach the word, and, you know, give you a good exegetical line-by-line sermon, and it can just, the whole thing can be a failure. Because we're not actually following Jesus. (laughs) We're not actually following the Christ we claim to love. Um, And what does that mean? What does it mean to to be a Christian? I'll I'll sum it up this way. To be Christian is actually to lay down my rights and my privileges and my preferences and my status so that I can become the servant of all. And and this is why you can put the word church on the side of your building. We have it right out here, Pleasant Valley, United Methodist Church. There it is. And anyone can do that. You can just put up church and yet fail to actually do it. In the same way as individuals, we can say, like, Jesus, Jesus, the good Lord, my devote my life to Christ. You know, we can do, say all the things. But if we're, not, if we're not living into it in this way, like, it's, what are we doing? What are we doing? All right, so that's first. Um, we've got to take our cues from Christ. And we've got to be very careful of how, how is culture kind of seeping in ways we don't even realize. Um, second, the church must continually purge itself of classism, racism, sexism, ageism, and so on and so forth. You know, all the isms. Um, Again, why? Because it just seeps in. Of course, Paul's dealing with class, right? The upper classes often in any culture. I mean, my goodness, for as long as humans have been around, we have this class differences, and then there's a tendency to exploit and take advantage of. And so what is church? Well, if church is being the way it's supposed to be, it's that place where people come together and relate without, um, well, I can't say without seeing that because honestly, we all see it, whether we want to or not. But hopefully we're learning to get over it and, and set aside our prejudices and our um, just ways that we judge and we're learning to love well. Uh, I think of, of my friend, uh, he lives now in Iowa. He, he grew up in Texas, um, but he has some uh, mental illnesses, uh, a number of pretty severe, schizophrenia, some others. Um, and so he spent a lot of time in Texas. He actually lived in Denton for a number of years. Um, it was a big deal for him to find uh, a church, really big. Um, and he recently, or, uh, three years ago, he moved to Iowa. And he lives kind of in a kind of quasi-institutional place there. It's not really like he's, he's not in a, um, like a mental institution per se. It's like a, a, a house in a neighborhood that they've kind of designated like, hey, folks can live here. They have someone who lives in there in the home with um, folks with some of these disabilities to make sure, you know, they're taking their medication and showering and, you know, things like that. Um, but he can still like kind of go around the neighborhood and whatever. So I've been, I try to talk with him every, every week or two. Um, I just call him on the phone, and so it's been three years now, and um, he hasn't yet found a church, and so um, I've been, like, encouraging him, like, hey, man, you just gotta, you know, go for it, like, you can do this, and he's like, yeah, I know I need to, so I was really excited um, last time I called him, last last week, 
and was just checking in. And, um, you know, coming back to class, like, there's certain things about him. It's pretty clearly, you can kind of tell where folks are on the hierarchy of the culture, right? You kind of know someone pulls up in their Bentley, that says something, right? <laughs> um, and, and so my friend, like, it's kind of the, you know, there's just certain indicators. Like, he was homeless for a number of years, so his teeth, you know, are just really not great. Um, and so there's, like, certain indicators that you can kind of tell, like, you know what I mean? His lack of social skills. Um, it's just clear he's kind of towards the bottom of the hierarchy. So I, you know, talking with him about a, a church, and I was excited, though, because he said, uh, well, because I asked him again, like, hey, did you, have you checked out a church? You know? He said, well, I went. Last week I went. And I was like, hey, nice. He's like, well, kind of. I was like, well, what do you mean, kind of? He said, well, I went, and then I just stood outside. But I, I couldn't go inside. And I was like, okay, well, you know, so close. Like, we're getting better. Uh, and I was like, well, why didn't you go in? And he said, honestly, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. But here's the thing. I do know. I know. Because I've watched him now attend churches for like seven years. And this is always his criteria. Like, as when he's visiting churches, this is always the thing he says. Like, he'll go to one place. And he's like, oh, I'll be, how'd that go? He's like, oh, not great. You know, and here's the thing. He never talks about, like, oh, the worship just wasn't quite to my liking, or the preacher, you know, not exegetical enough, or blah, blah. Like, it's never any of that. This is what he always says. Like, they weren't very nice there. That's what he always says. It's always, that's always his word, nice. Right? They weren't very nice there. And then you go to another church, and he's, like, super excited. Like, oh, my gosh, I went to that church. Those people were so nice. They were so nice. Like, that's, that's his only criteria. Now, what does he mean? Right, nice. Because we kind of look at it like, nice, well, church isn't just about being nice. We got to, I don't know, whatever, critiques of nice. I get the word nice isn't maybe the perfect word. What's he getting at? He's just talking about loving, <laughs> right? Kind, compassionate, like seeing someone who's different, right? Different place on the hierarchy and knowing how to get down and like love people, right? Like meeting people where they're at, my gosh, we can't. It's like 2,000 years and we're, we're still Corinthians. Right? We're still just tripping over. We're struggling. I don't mean to hammer like us, like we, you all. I just, you know, I'm talking about the collective we, the church, and at times us too. Heck, at times me. All of us. Like, it's just a struggle. Man, my prayer um, for us, may we always be a church where my friend would be welcome, where he would say, those people are nice. They're nice. I mean, maybe that, maybe that could be, like, the highest thing we ever aspire to. I mean, maybe that, you know, what if that's it? Like, that's a huge win. If my friend could come and, those people are nice. Because what's that getting at? It's back to Christ, right? This is who we're called to be, like Jesus. Jesus was nice, especially to folks like him. Of course, it's not just class, though. We can just keep going on. There's racism. Um, boy, we are struggle. But there's, there's just no place in the kingdom of God, in the church in general, in, at the table. No, ch- no space for a, um, you know, this kind of I'm superior, I'm above, you know, because of my racial identity. Or they're, they're kind of put in the negative, or they're below, because, right, in this judging of people based on the color of skin. Like, just n- no 
Just to, I think this is kind of one of those topics that I just think is sort of implied, like, oh, everyone knows. I'm just going to make it real clear tonight, just so it's kind of implicit in everything the table does, just to make it explicit. Like, no. <laughs> we are not going the classism game, the racism game, um, what else? Of oh, sexism, this idea of you know that certain a certain gender kind of being like the superior, the better, the more qualified, and so like nope, 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 nope. Um, another one I thought was big, at least in our kind of context, is age, ageism. This is an interesting one. Like in the ancient world, it was the the older folks who were like venerated. You know, like young people was like shut your mouth. You have no wisdom. We don't want to listen to you at all. Be quiet for like forty years. You know. Um, now, you know, it's interesting how things have reversed. Like, in our culture, there's such a, a sort of worship of youth and youthfulness and um, almost to an obsessive point. And that is totally making its way into churches where there's this sort of, like, it, and I do think there's a good thing in terms of wanting to appreciate young folks and, you know, like, um, yeah, like, that's, there's a good part to that. But the danger is this weird kind of obsession with youthfulness and, you know, every pastor, uh, you know, has to fit a certain look and be a certain way and a certain age and a certain, you know what I mean? And then even as the pastor gets older, they still kind of have to pretend like they're still 25, you know, and it's kind of like, no, no, what, what's, but what's going on there? Well, that's the pressure. It's the culture, right? And the, it just seeps in. It's sort of disturbing if you go to a church and everyone's like a certain class level and dresses a certain way, um, looks the same, certain age, you know? Like, everyone wants to be a young church. I think just purely young churches, that should freak us out. Like, oh gosh, just nothing but young people. Like, how disturbing. You know, like, no, we need, so like, we need all different sorts of people here, and okay, you guys get it. I'm, I'm kind of ranting. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it's not even that we're like overtly mean to people. You know, I think how this often happens, we just kind of ignore, you know? It's just sort of like, that's just not really my person, my type of th those, those folks, whatever the criteria is. Um, in other words, to be Christian, I think is sort of the opposite of that, is to render um, invisible people visible. I think that's what we're trying to do in church. Rendering invisible people visible to cast no one aside to allow no one to be forgotten. Um, so just thinking back to my friend, man, he longs to be seen. He does. Oh, human, we all do, don't we? Human beings, we just long to be seen, heard, known, cherished. Like, it's simple, you know, but it's hard to live out. All right, so that's second. Third, the church must repent of its failures and turn again to Christ. I know that's old-fashioned language, but oh well. <laughs> I just think it's just the truth. Like, we've got to repent of the places where we've messed all this up and be like, yeah, let's, let's not go down that road again, right? Like, let's turn. This is the picture of repentance. I'm going this way. I turn, and I'm, I'm, going, I'm moving towards Christ again. Paul kind of addresses this. He, he actually reminds them about what the Lord's Supper is actually all about um, because he says clearly, in fact, he even says there's that one line where he's like, um, you, don't, you haven't been taking the Lord's Supper. Like, technically they have, right? But he's like, nope, I don't know what you've been doing, but it's not taking the Lord's Supper. <laughs> so he says this, verse 23. So, here, so he's like, here's what it's actually about. For I received uh, from the Lord what I also passed on to you. 
the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Pretty ominous. Uh, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. I think um, a lot of confusion has kind of sprung up around this passage in particular. I think it's probably um, from, A, not knowing the context, right, of everything I just shared with you, Um, but B, I think it's also maybe the King James. Here's how the the King King James... uh, Translation puts it, uh, wherefore whosoever, so King James, wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Um, And I I think that kind of language of unworthily, it kind of pushed us to think um, in terms of me individually becoming, I've got to be, I've got to be worthy of the bread and the cup instead of Paul saying, in an unworthy manner, right? He's thinking, there's maybe still a place for me individually, like some examination and such, but he's really thinking socially, right? Like, in an unworthy manner. Um, We we need to both, as individuals and collectively, do some soul-searching as we come to the table to ask this question, what kind of gospel have we been proclaiming not with the mouth part of us, with, with our bodies, with our relating to one another, right? That's what it means to come and take the, the bread, eat of the bread, drink of the cup, and do it in a manner that's worthy of the Lord Jesus. It's about our relating our relationships to one another. In other words, what kind of gospel have we been proclaiming? It, has it been selfishness? In classism, um, has that been kind of worming its way into our life, either as individuals or even collectively? Um, or are we a place where no one feels invisible? Are we the dictators of our homes, or are we the servant of all? Like that's what it's about. That's what it means to partake of the cup. Um, eat of the bread in a manner that's worthy. And so what I want to do before we take communion, I want to lead us in um, a short um, a, a reading uh, from, this is uh, basically just a prayer of repentance. Um, and do we have that? Can you guys put that up? Yeah. Cool. So what I want to do, you guys can just um, read this together um, with me. So... Um, yeah, we'll just do it that way. I, f- I think it'd be a little easier than me reading apart and you trying to, you know, all that back and forth. So y'all just read it with me. Holy God, we have not loved as we ought to have loved. We have allowed the darkness of the world to blind us to your kingdom ways of relating. We have demanded our rights, privileges, and preferences to the exclusion of those truly in need. We have adorned ourselves with status symbols in a desperate attempt to fill the gaping void within us. 
we have elbowed our way to the front of the line, all while proclaiming the Christ who said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Forgive us. Help us to practice the way of unconditional love, tenderheartedness, and compassion. Help us to be the church you have called us to be. Amen.